Cuisine Bites with Kelly Brett. Everything you'll ever need to know about food. Coveted by many chefs but bestowed on only an excellent few. A Michelin star, or three, can change the fate of a restaurant and forge the career path of a chef. I'm Kelly Brett, and in this episode of Cuisine Bites, I'm taking you inside two New York restaurants that are both at the top of their game. Running a restaurant at any level takes a lot of passion, a lot of sacrifice, and a lot of learning. One day I had this revelation, I realised that being angry is not a quality. Chefs screaming and abusing their staff uh, are not stronger than chefs who are compassionate and inspiring their team. And I switch almost overnight. Eric Rippert from three Michelin star restaurant Le Bernardine spoke frankly with me about what it takes to be in the restaurant game when the stakes are so high. We are here to cook. We are here to live our, our, our passion through the process of feeding people, making people happy. And we should never forget that. The day you divert from that idea, you are going on the wrong path. I'll take you to that chat with Eric inside the Le Bernardine kitchen shortly, but first to a little spot known as the Musket Room in Nolita, New York, where Matt and Barbara Lambert are serving New Yorkers modern New Zealand cuisine, heavily inspired by Matt's food memories. Now, Matt's become a bit of a legend in New Zealand. If you have a look at his Instagram, at the real Matt Lambert, you'll see just how many chefs and hospitality people follow him and interact with him. And before we go any further, I do need to warn you that Matt likes a swear word or two. Comes with the territory, so if a bit of swearing offends you, please switch off now before it's too late. It's a big deal for a New Zealand chef to be flying the flag for New Zealand in New York. The Musket Room was awarded one Michelin star just four months after opening in 2013, and it's maintained that one star status ever since. The success of the Musket Room is very much due to the partnership between Matt and his wife Barbara. And Barbara had no idea what she was in for when she walked into the Grove restaurant in Auckland and met an eager young West Aucklander who was about to steal her heart. Our people, our stories, our food. Um, in 2005, I graduated college uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, um, and decided that I had no idea what I wanted to do with, uh, with my life, so I decided to move to New Zealand. I applied for a J-1 working visa, moved to Onihanga and moved in with a DJ and had a job lined up at The Grove as a back waiter, uh, lunch server. And at the time, uh, The Grove was only open about a year. Uh, Michael Durth and Annette were running uh, the front of house as they still do. Um, and Michael Meredith was the chef at the time. My husband was a line cook, which then turned into Junior Sue. I was a sous chef. Um, I worked there for uh, about three months, and then we decided to elope, which was crazy. My mother had a panic attack. We eloped at the Auckland City Registrar. Michael Meredith was the witness, and Melissa of Ponsonby Street Bistro uh, was my other witness. And so from there to here, and I know this is a very hard question for you to answer in just a few sentences, but how the hell did you get here, Matt? Um, Barbara went to New Zealand and bought back a souvenir. That's a hell of a souvenir. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I got to America. But um, yeah, working for Mike 
at the Grove was like super dope. And then also I figured like, I don't know who I'm going to go work for after him in New Zealand because, you know, I regarded and still regard him to be one of the best, if not the best chef in the country. Um, so I thought I'd be good to go work overseas. And then Barbara told me she was from just outside of New York, which happened to be Connecticut. So that was a bit of a lie. But anyway, um, I thought New York would be really cool at the time. The internet wasn't really popping in New Zealand yet. It was still a lot of dial-up and stuff. So, you know, all of the research you'd do would be online. And we're, I was looking at restaurants like Aquavita at the time, uh, WD-50 and Per Se. I guess Marcus Samuelson had just been to New Zealand, so a lot of people kind of knew about him. And um, that pushed a lot of research. But anyway, the whole time I, you know, worked pretty hard in restaurants in New Zealand from a very young age, and I wanted to get to work in Michelin-starred restaurants because... I just always wanted to be part of that system, really. I just figure it's a good barometer of where you're at and wanted to, you know, do good stuff. <laughs> How do you define fine dining? Um, well, I'm from West Auckland, so I'm not really the most fine dining dude. I'm a bit of a bogan, you know. So um, we try to, the approach here is like, you know, I try to do the best I can with the food. And then sometimes I think that comes off a little fine dining-ish. Definitely takes from the sensibilities and stuff, but... I don't really see it as a fine dining restaurant, I see it as a casual restaurant. Especially at the time when we opened, there was like less people doing something more approachable but trying really hard, which seems to be very sort of prevalent and common now, like bistronomy and all that. Not the restaurant, the uh, genre of food, if you will, or like um, neo-bistros, that sort of stuff, you know? So, you know, I remember going to restaurants like, uh, well, three Michelin-star restaurants, two Michelin-star restaurants in the city when I was working at other restaurants as a line cook and, you know, having dress codes and stuff like that. And it always kind of bothered me because you don't make a lot of money. <laughs> You're trying to spend whatever disposable income you have on eating at these great restaurants to see where the level's at. And then now you've got to have a suit and you've got to have, a, you know, like, and I, like I said, I'm from West Auckland, so I don't casually wear suits and stuff like that. I wear t-shirts with bands and you know shit like that so I wanted to have a restaurant where you could come in in a motorhead t-shirt or a suit and have the same experience and either person would be very happy you know what I mean yeah so long-winded way to say casual dining you know yeah I don't understand how you can live together and work together like this although in hospitality if you don't live together and work together you'd hardly ever have a relationship would you so that makes sense but who wears the pants I do. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. I am thankful to be surrounded by a lot of amazing people every day. I have an amazing network of girlfriends and family um, outside of my husband. And I think it's just really important to make sure that you take care of your mental health. And if you're not okay, you know, you can't make everyone else happy. And uh, that's how I deal with it personally. You know, I, I wake up with my husband. We have children together. We have two businesses together. We are together all of the time Um, and it definitely gets stressful at times Um, chef is certainly someone who strives non-stop for the best and sometimes doesn't stop where I'm not always as motivated as him I'm more on the let's make people happy where he wants to continue to be the best which I think is a pretty amazing thing to be driven um, that much You know what, I think there's a give and take. I think relationships are a choice and you decide to make it work or you you can let it go. 
And I read uh, an interview, I think it was in Eta a few years ago, where you were saying, we've got this amazing restaurant, we're really happy, I will never have another restaurant, though that's it for me. And you've just opened another restaurant. Yeah, and it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done next to open the musket room, next to having children. And uh, you know what? We wanted the challenge. We wanted to to grow. Um, and at some point, Matt and I wanted didn't want to raise our children in New York City. We both didn't grow up here. We, I mean, New Zealand is certainly more of a country. I grew up on a, a more a small town in Connecticut, and. Moving out of the city, it's really amazing to watch your kids just run outside and play and ride the, their bike down the street and, for what we think, have a normal childhood and just be happy and not worry about, you know, walking down the street and passing bums or just the hardship of life uh, being thrown in your face. Everybody knows in New Zealand the musket room. I've got so many messages from chefs to give you, Matt. You, you need about three hours for me afterwards so I can give you all the messages. So we'll talk about the musket room in a minute, but first... Tell me what the new restaurant is. So basically, this restaurant, you know, is stressful. There's, it's never going to not be stressful. Um, you know, you make the decision to do something well, it's probably going to be stressful. So, you know, it's my own fault or whatever. But anyway, it's in New York City. There's, I don't know, how many thousand restaurants in New York City. So there's lots of competition. Um, it's challenging all the time. It's not cheap to have staff or rent anymore or anything like that so there's lots and lots of challenges it's also like I'm competitive you know what I mean I'm from New Zealand I sucked at rugby so I had to find something else to be good at you know so I think most New Zealanders have that sort of competitive nature especially when they go overseas you know and you see that with a lot of people especially you know chefs like I know a lot of young cooks that are kicking ass in kitchens around the world now I know Josh Emmett cut his teeth in the hardest restaurants in the world at the time you look at people like Ben Sherry top of the game in Australia so like usually when Kiwi chefs like leave the country they have pretty you know um, def defined intentions where they want to do well you know so anyway I'm in that situation the Michelin guide could be here tonight could be here tomorrow night I don't know I still don't know who they are um, which is cool and shit but it could be your worst table could be your best table you know you could change your life and get two stars or you know change your life and lose your star you know what I mean like that so there's that all the time so anyway the the inherent point of the other restaurant that we have is to just have fun and just cook you know what I mean without the stresses of uh, cutting vegetables to a certain size or you know Michelin coming or the New York Times or something like that um, but yeah the point is to just be fun and just cook you know what I mean change the menu more regularly um, whereas here sometimes it gets pretty I'll sit on something for a long time because if it's good, it's good and it's it's hard to basically execute something well every day. You know what I mean? This is going to be your casual restaurant. Yeah, it's definitely, it's by all means casual. It's a bistro, so yeah. I mean, the other thing too is the area speaks to that sort of, you know, casual lifestyles and there's no fancy restaurants in Connecticut. Let's just be point blank about it. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no one in the world top 50. There's, you know... It's not like a food destination place, but at the same time, it has some of the most amazing seafood you'll ever try. It has some of the best farms in New England, you know what I mean? And it has like a lot to offer. Yeah, the best pizza in the world for sure, the world's first hamburger, stuff like this. Um, so, you know, doing a bistro there was cool for me and I just want to celebrate that area. And it also has like a, 
not entirely because there is a uh, uh, an Italian influence there, but it's New England. You know what I mean? So it's similar people that ended up going to New Zealand instead of you know America and shit like that. So there is um, things that tie together that are similar to New Zealand, but it's obviously not New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> do you think a chef that's serious about his work or her work do they have to leave New Zealand to make a name for themselves? So there there was a point in time where probably that was true, and it would be very hard to argue. But um, I think with like things like Instagram and the internet and world lists like the World Top 50, the world definitely seems a lot smaller. And I don't know if it's because I'm older or it's because communication is so fast. You know what I mean? Like, I know what's going on in New Zealand when it's happening almost just from following my mates. You know what I mean? I don't think that would have been the case when I was a younger chef in New Zealand in 1997. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I mean, the reason this restaurant is a... New Zealand focused restaurant is because I'm proud as fuck that I'm a Kiwi. It's weird to have it in New York City. Ideally, I guess it would be in New Zealand, you know what I mean? It just turns out my life put me here. This is where I am, so this is what I'm doing. But I think anyone with high ambitions and just fortitude to stick to something can do the same thing in New Zealand easily, you know what I mean? And you will get noticed if you just keep trying. And, you know, people are being noticed because they are trying, you know? Yeah. How do you explain this restaurant and your New Zealand menu to your clientele? How do I say that? <laughs> um, I, I think for a lot of people, they don't geographically necessarily understand New Zealand as well. It's an island in the middle of nowhere. It's farther away from Australia than most people think. It's you know a three and a half hour flight, really, which is from here to Florida. So if you're thinking, Americans, as they think, Oh, going to Florida is not that close. So it's an island in the middle of nowhere. They're using as much local ingredients as possible. It has some of the best seafood in the world. So just using the resources that they have. And as well, there's a huge influence as far as the uh, very Antipodean uh, influence. There's a British element. There's also a big uh, Asian influence with a lot of huge Asian um, immigration population. So it really is a melting pot for us, for the other side of the world. But... It's an island in the middle of the ocean, and there's nothing else around, right? So you're using the best of what you can from where from where it's coming from. On that, are you using any New Zealand products? Yeah. So, like, I don't bl- just blindly use anything, but I'm using uh, Mountain River Savena, which I've had on, like, venison that I've had on the menu since we've opened, uh, and I use Aura King. There's two other companies that I use very consistently. That's also been since we opened as Lot 8. I use the citrus olive oil and it's almost like, yeah, I have to, everywhere I cook, I always just bring it with me because it's kind of like one of those, yeah, it's part of the vocabulary almost, you know. Do you know that she's got a new chef's oil out now? Is it the yuzu one? Oh, no, that's the yuzu, the yuzu. We all love the yuzu. No, she's got now a a special chef's cooking oil out. Is it like a blended oil? Oh, no, I didn't know that. But yeah, well, that's good. <laughs> I have to give that a go. And then um, working that, oh, and fresh as. I use like a good amount of freeze-dried stuff because, I don't know, I feel like, you know, the responsibility of having something travel that far. Um, I don't I don't want to go all out, you know what I mean? And freeze-dried stuff makes a lot of sense because it weighs bugger all and it still has those really intense flavours that New Zealand produce has, you know? Certain times of years I've got like uh, passion fruit I'll get from New Zealand and I got Fijo's for one menu one time but not everybody is familiar with that flavour over here so it was a bit weird and I just didn't do it again. Mm. I like them. That'd be a bit confronting for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
nostalgia seems to play a lot into yeah. the menu? Yeah, yeah. Well, so basically the reason I cook is because I grew up cooking with my grandmother and my mother, uh, doing a lot of baking and preserving and stuff, like, you know, like most people from West Auckland in the 80s. You go pick your strawberries and, you know, go to Henderson Creek and get blackberries and, you know, I used to go eel fishing and stuff like that. So a lot of those memories, you know, those are the things you've got to draw on when you get a bit older because, like, what do you want to – what are you trying to achieve, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not really just trying to follow a bunch of trends and uh, cook Nordic food and then, you know, before that, Spanish food and shit like that, you know what I mean? I just want to cook good food and, you know, only have my own reference points. So, yeah, my childhood is a big one and my parents – my grandmother and my mother especially, like, cooked a lot, you know. Actually, my dad's mother cooked a shitload as well, but she was Samoan, so the food was a lot different. And I didn't really cook with her. She'd just kind of stay up all night and present a lot of food, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, a lot of lot of food growing up. You mentioned earlier the, the Michelin star. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's and you, that came very early to you. I believe you were only four months into yeah. the restaurant. Yeah. Uh, does it put bums on seeds? Uh, I, yeah, definitely at the time it did, you know, like especially because when, when it comes out, it's well-pressed. You know what I mean? And generally the most interesting thing on the list is what's new, you know what I mean? Because that's the world we live in. Um, and, yeah, so I think sustainably, 100% also, because we see a lot of international guests. What is it, the second most visited city in the world or something? So there, there is that. But a lot of people that come here to eat specifically are from Europe, and I, I believe personally that that's based on the Michelin Guide, you know? What's the pressure like to have to retain that? Yeah. And every year, what's that like? Um... It's a real weird one. Uh, like to retain it, cool. Like I think I can do that. Do you know what I mean? I think I've, you know we've proved that to ourselves. Um, I would like to do better. <laughs> and there's been times where I thought we were like pretty close, and then there's been other times where I, you know, haven't been comfortable that we are that close. So yeah, it's it's just a challenge. You know what I mean? Like I'm the kind of person that's not really satisfied with much. So getting a star, really cool. Getting it really quickly, like cool but it doesn't really matter how fast you do something you know and then um since then it's been i don't know i'm more grateful to maintain it now than i would have been say two years in because i would just be blindly oh i've got to get two i've got to get two we already got one we've got to get two you know what i mean and then as the years go on and i see people i know who cook very fucking good food in different countries around the world that don't have stars i'm kind of like well what kind of an asshole would have a star these people are dying to get one and they don't have one so I'm definitely way more appreciative of it now but I also still want to do better you know what I mean because I already did that do you know what I mean that's that's cool I'm just I don't know want to do better than what I already did you know and that's because you're driven you're obviously driven I've just looked at you you've been in here today since nine o'clock in the morning you've been yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You've been shooting your new menu today, yeah. and then of course you've been doing this stuff with me for for Cuisine Magazine, yeah. and then you're going into a full service tonight. So. Oh, then I got a full day in Connecticut tomorrow. So, what about your own life balance? How is that going for you? Yeah, I don't know. I always also like I think about this a lot, and like because a lot of people talk about like uh, and some shit. So you know you got to have balance around. Right, right. I just kind of think the whole concept of having balance. It's just a little bit bullshit. Because <laughs> I, re- I really think, like, you're either fucking doing it or you're not doing it. And, like, you know, if you 
you'll know like you know like you might be able to tell someone oh yeah no I'm balancing everything really well now I've got this balance where I do this at home and I do that it's like you know if you're doing that then that means that you're letting the other thing go you know what I mean and it's just really tough because a lot of the times you well I, I work hard you know what I mean I'm proud of my work uh, and then a lot of times I don't see my kids much you know what I mean and then yeah if I I travel a lot and cook a lot in other places in New Zealand like so I do that but as soon as I leave to do that then I'm losing time here and I'm losing time there and then I've got to try and make it up as soon as I get back which ultimately just takes away from the kids so I try to keep Sunday free <laughs> but um yeah I get that. I hear that. Gosh, I you know I'm an '80s girl, yeah. and in the '80s they told us we could have it all. Well, yeah. you know, in reality, you no. can't. Yeah. You can't have it all. Yeah. yeah. So, so I get that, um, and I hear from from chefs all the time about the, their families and yeah. the fact that they've they've got to give that up. Yeah, 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 yeah. It sucks. Oh. Sucks a lot. But yeah. there will be a day, I guess, yeah. when you'll be ready to walk away from that. And, and the, the, you know, yeah. but, oh, my God, if you could see the look of panic on his face yeah. right now when I say that. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what I would do with myself. But at the same time, like, I don't know. I read something that uh, Ben Sherry wrote recently where he was like, oh, I've been cooking for X amount of time. Think about the hours I do each week. I am basically should be in retirement at this point. It fucked me up because <laughs> he's dead, right? You know what I mean? Like, shit. Yeah, that's a lot of work. I, and I left high school two years early to start working full time you know what I mean so yeah could have had two more uh, years of vacation at school but fucking went straight into it yeah but look at where you are yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I don't regret anything that's for sure but um yeah well maybe a couple things <laughs> but yeah yeah happy with the way things worked out <laughs> there's always something yeah. so let's just quickly talk about um uh, New Zealand because uh, you've got stuff going on over there as well um, you've got an amazing uh, menu at the Lodge Bar in yep. Queenstown and I believe going to open something in Auckland soon yep. so uh, yeah been doing the Lodge Bar since it opened and I think we're sitting on about two and a half years and I go down anywhere between two and four well uh, four times every year so far to change the menu with each season uh, train the guys make sure everything's all good I love it because there's lots of products in New Zealand I would love to use, but, you know, time is of the essence, and when they get here, a lot of times they're dead. So specifically the seafood, like I go real ham there. <clears throat> and then that'll be the same thing in Auckland. The difference between Queenstown and Auckland is Queenstown basically doesn't have a real kitchen, has no hood, no gas, no oven oven. So it's all induction. You know, they make good inductions, but it's not the same. Yeah, and it'll have an outdoor area, and yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. Maybe September, okay. but it's been pushed back a lot. It was supposed to be like June last year, I think. Where is New Zealand at at the moment with its restaurants? Uh, it's, I don't know. It's definitely made massive progress in the last sort of, I don't know, I would say six years because I've been paying way more attention in the last six years, whereas like, you know, the first six years I was in this country, it just head down bummer. Mm. Uh, not looking at anything. I, I think I went to New Zealand like one time in 10 years, you know what I mean? Um, so now I see a lot more of what's going on and I don't know, man, there's heaps of cool stuff happening all over the country from uh, Julio at Roots, who I had the good fortune to cook with. Same thing with Vaughan at Amersfield. I cook with him, like what they're doing. I even cook with uh, Bradley at Arbor. Great stuff. I had and ate one time at Hopgoods in Nelson. Amazing. 
Um, my family all live in Wellington. So when I go to Wellington, I, I usually go to a cafe and I can't remember what it's called, Podokey maybe? I think it's Martin Bosley runs the, or consults on the kitchen. And then I always go to Charlie Noble, just because it's, it's good, good tucker. Uh, oh, and um, Otega Fish Shack, another good one. And then I miss out the, the, the meat of the North Island and then usually I'm in Auckland. And honestly, I, I haven't really eaten out in Auckland in a long time. But high on my list of places I want to eat is, uh, God damn it, Ed at... Pasture. Pasture, yeah. So that, that's the one place I haven't eaten yet that I'd really like to. But I mean, last time I was there, I think I ate at like the Oyster Inn in Waiheke. I've eaten around. I went to Clooney, but Des was there. That's how long ago that was, and that was great. Uh, Sid, obviously, Sid Art. Been to the Grove once, but that was so long ago that Sid was still there. Um, yeah, so, but, you know, when I think about it, when I was working there, which is like 2005 or six, you know, it was like, I don't know, people might get pissed off if I say this, but there wasn't a whole lot of awesome restaurants. It was kind of like the Grove, White, uh, definitely the French Cafe, and you know there were other places that were pretty good. Vinnie's was good, um, but not like there is now. Like now, I've, I've got a much longer list. You know what I mean? And I also think that has a lot to do with how fast communication is now. You know what I mean? Like I, you can, back then you had to buy a book maybe if you could get it, and there was no Amazon, <laughs> and hope for the best. You know what I mean? Whereas now you can buy books really fast I guess and then the other thing is you can instantly see what everyone's doing and while you can't taste their food to understand what it tastes like you can have a pretty good idea by looking at it you know and at least visually a lot of people are keeping up like with the world easily you know there's 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 places in the world that are much worse off than New Zealand you know what I mean I understand some people are probably a bit challenged by the fact that it's not recognized as it should be with like world 50 or something like that but Rome wasn't built in a day, you know what I mean? Like, it'll happen. It's all good. Um, yeah. What do you think's going to be the best dish that I'm going to have tonight? Do you even know? Uh, well, I think they're all good, so this is always a hard one. Um, but there's, well, it must be the dying days of the hangy potato, so I'll, I'll send you that, um, and you can tell me what you think afterwards. Yeah, I, I like that one a lot. Can't wait. Yeah. Thank you. No worries. Thank you. <laughs> Cuisine Bites. So from the picturesque, cool and almost gritty vibe of Nolita, New York, to West 51st Street, Manhattan and Le Bernardin, with its current place on the world's 50 best restaurant list at number 36, currently acclaimed as the number one restaurant in the world by La Liste, and retaining three Michelin stars for 2019, the coveted three. The Michelin Guide says that when the definitive history of New York's dining scene is written, Le Bernardin will have a chapter all to itself. The chef behind it all is Eric Rippett, recognised as one of the best chefs in the world, especially when it comes to seafood. And as you're about to hear, although at the absolute top of his game, the absolute top, he's incredibly humble. I came to America in 1989, in New York in 1990, and I walked into the doors of Le Bernardin on June 10 at 7.40 a.m. of 2001. And I can tell you that with precision because I, l I look at my watch and I knew it was a special moment for me. I don't know, no, Sixth Sense was telling me it was going to be special. And uh, now we are 2019 and I'm at Le Bernardin. <laughs> 
So still here, but how have you stayed here, Chef? I stayed here because I love this place. I love what I do. I have an amazing platform to express myself as a chef and as a restaurant owner as well. And therefore, Le Bernardin is my house and uh, I have no reason to go anywhere else. I'm very, very content and, and happy uh, in the walls of Le Bernardin. The pressure must be incredible, Eric. We talk very much now about uh, mental health in kitchens and how to make a job sustainable. How have you managed to survive under this incredible pressure? I don't see the pressure. And uh, the reason why is because I have a certain balance in my life, which is in between the family, time for myself, and time for, of course, Le Bernardin. Um, every morning when I come, to, I do not think about pressure or any outside world. I'm being focused on, first of all, the kitchen where I belong and making experience for the clients that is unique and making sure that the team is inspired and the team is happy to come here. So all of that keep me very busy and I don't get any distraction from it and therefore the pressure disappears perhaps easier for you at this level, but when you first started? I started at Le Bernardin, I was 26, and I had a temper, and I was having tantrums in the kitchen and breaking china on the floor and so on, and I was miserable, my staff was miserable, everybody was quitting, and one day I had this revelation, I realized that being angry is not a quality, chefs screaming and abusing their staff uh, are not him, and I switched almost overnight from this idiotic chef that was abusing uh, his team to someone who wanted to nurture the team. And it has great rewards for myself, but also for the team. And it's, I mean, it's very logical. A, a cook who's shaking cannot do a better job than a cook who's inspired and happy to be in a kitchen with his mentor. What do you think it was that made you switch, though? Was there a light bulb, something that made you realize? What made me switch was the fact that I was miserable in my life. And I, was, I would come home and sit down on, uh, on the sofa and look at the ceiling very late at night, because obviously, as you know, we, we finished late. And I was like, why, why are you miserable night after night after night and day after days? And uh, it made me think, at the same time, I was starting to study Buddhism and it had a huge impact in my life. It's very personal. Obviously, not try to bring the philosophy of Buddhism into the kitchen, except that I do it in a secular way. Uh, I'm not converting anyone here. But the help of that spirituality and my own struggle developed this awakening in a sense and that changed everything and does that practice of buddhism come into the creation of your food creativity in terms of food has not much to do with the philosophy of buddhism creativity is something is an, a different exercise is something that is potentially um, not going against the principles of buddhism but Buddhism is a much bigger philosophy than creating dishes. Perhaps the discipline? For sure. And concentration comes mm. definitely from 
the practice of meditation can be secular, doesn't have to be necessarily attached to any or spirituality, but concentration definitely helps you tremendously in in the creative aspect. Although creativity is something that must be free, and um, as you know, you cannot control creativity. You don't press a button and say, oh, I'm going to be creative from eight to nine, and then at nine you switch, and suddenly you do something else. Creativity at, at its own dynamic will help the seeds of uh, creating a, a soil. For me, it's creating an ambience that has um, completely eradicated stress in my life and that is um, fed by curiosity and the chance that I have, of course, of interacting with other, other people from other countries. And, and in New York, we are very spoiled because it's the, the United Nations here. Speaking of New York, it's spring in New York at the moment. What is exciting you the most on your menu? It's the spring in New York, always starting very slowly here. And, and you, I'm sure you have seen in the streets, is no leaves, no flowers. Mm. However, we're st getting products from not too far away, two hours south of New York, three hours um, south of New York. We're starting to have some um, soft-shell crabs in the U.S. Uh, we have vegetables and, and out of the ground. We can import, of course, from California, but we try to stay very local. Um, slowly but surely, we're getting some uh, asparagus and ramps, which are wild leeks, and uh, we're starting to get some and so on, and it's the beginning. Of course, we have morels um, in the woods and season now, so we, of course, adapt to those products that help us tremendously in, in moving out of the winter and going into the spring. Yes, of course, in New York, you can get anything you want, however, our internal clock tells us not to eat tomatoes in January yeah. when it's blizzard outside and when it's the month of August and it's really hot and humid in New York, the last thing you want is to eat potato leek soup, for instance. So yes, in New York we get everything, but the seasons have definitely an impact on ourselves and uh, uh, sh chefs and, and of course uh, clients we crave things that are seasonal and it's a natural process. So right now, I want to get out of the winter so badly. <laughs> Anything that is a bit springish is a blessing. <laughs> I'd like to ask you a little bit about awards and accolades. Michelin has always been there, world's 50 best. How do you feel about that? We do not take rewards and awards for granted. However, except maybe the, the night before of the, uh, the Michelin Guide comes out or the, or the, the night before the 50 best. In the present, we try to do what we're supposed to do, which is special experience for our guests. Um, when the awards come, we celebrate, and then we go back to our routine. I believe that if you stress yourself and you pressure yourself with those awards, you forget about what you're supposed to do first. And my best analogy is the actor who's in a studio shooting a movie thinking about getting the Oscar. Well, he's not, not going to get an Oscar because he's forgetting to act. Same for us. We are cooks and chefs because we love the act of cooking. We are not in this industry to become rich and famous. Some of the chefs have 
been successful at, at being rich and famous and, and doing great cooking. But I think those chefs really became whatever because they didn't think about the act of becoming and so on. Soon as you start to be obsessed again with those aspects, it's negative on your, on your uh, work, it's negative on your life as a professional, and therefore you're putting too much pressure on yourself and you will not get where you want to be. I know that you were very close to Bourdain, and I don't want to ask you about your personal relationship with him, but uh, on his passing, such an incredible reaction around the world and such an incredible reaction from chefs in general. So now that time has passed, what's your feeling on his legacy? Anthony Bourdain had a huge influence uh, on our industry to begin with. When he wrote Kitchen Confidential, he became... Uh, a world celebrity in a sense and then he had the opportunities to do those TV show and he touched so many of us because he would make us travel with him discover cultures uh, all very different you were going in a street you were talking to the street vendor you were eating the food and process you were discovering the country and you were discovering the culture and you were understanding someone else and you you it was no fear about interacting with someone that you didn't know a culture that you didn't understand just curiosity and sharing and that was what anthony legacy is today and uh, he didn't want us to go and travel and stay in a five-star hotel although it's nothing wrong with that pool have a, have a cocktail and look at the palm trees if you are in a tropical place or or do something else in another hotel, but he wanted you to get out of your hotel and he wanted you to go visit and interact with people again. And the food was for him uh, the medium to, to do that. And uh, it touched the heart of so many people all, all around the world in the industry, but of course, outside our industry, it's, it's a much bigger phenomenon he created. And, but we have his legacy that's still very much alive. And it was definitely dramatic and sad, but at the same time, the positive was that he brought people together and everybody uh, paid homage to him, especially in our industry. And I think the best homage we can pay today is still be curious and still travel and be humble and, and uh, travel the world and learn from the basics and the basics starting in a street with street food that's the basic of everything fine fine dining doesn't exist without street food you don't get inspired by something that is not coming from that region that is local and that is seasonal and that the people are cooking uh, and have developed uh, craftsmanship around it for long long time it's that thing of authenticity though as well which is so real in, in, in everything in cooking at the moment. For sure, authenticity, you cannot make believe. And today, the world is thinking about many things when we're talking about cooking, but it's about sustainability for the planet and for the individuals, for the animals as well. Uh, it's about being local helping the community around you as much as you can, being seasonal, because again, it makes no sense to eat tomatoes when it's freezing outside. And uh, all of that, it's part of a, a big culture um, that is a big trend that is not going to fade. Nobody wants to eat food 
Nobody wants to eat vegetables with pesticides and genetically modified uh, that have and antibiotics and live in evil conditions. And uh, uh, all of that is very much in the mind of the consumers, the clients, and, and of course the chefs uh, who are preparing the meals. For a chef or a restaurateur who is in it for the long haul and who really wants to go all the way, do you have any advice? I know 10 hours and tell them <laughs> the do's and the don'ts, but anything? To be patient, hardworking, curious, humble. Mm. Those qualities definitely lead to potentially success. Whoever is in a restaurant industry, whoever is in Either way, on the dining room, I know better the kitchen than, than the front of the house. We are here to live our, our, our passion through the process of feeding people, making people happy. And we should never forget that. The day you divert from that idea, you are going on the wrong path. And potentially, you will not be happy at the end. Um, we, we are here to create a special experience. It's about hospitality, and you have to remember that we are in a restaurant of... We are, I'm sorry, not a restaurant, but I mean, we are actually. But we are definitely in an industry that is all about hospitality, which means make people happy around us. And uh, that is the driving force of successful people in our industry. Do you ever get upset when your customers ask you to leave something on the side or they want the chicken without the sauce? How do you cope with that? Le Bernardin being a seafood restaurant, I don't, <laughs> have, I don't have a problem <laughs> with the chicken. <laughs> However, we do not have an ego about what the clients want. Obviously, we have a man, the dishes are crafted a certain way because we believe it's the best recipe at the moment that we can offer to the guest, uh, are going to force you to eat something that you don't want to eat. Um, also, you have to remember, clients are from one client to the other. Everybody is very different. Some people have a certain way of eating a dish. People eat the fish first. Some people try the sauce and go with the vegetables and the sauce. Some people mix everything. I'm able to control the way people are experiencing the dish. And it's very rare that a client eats the dish exactly the way the chef wants the client to eat it. So when you start to think like that, then you are much more flexible for someone who asks you to remove something from the dish or who has allergies. And as we experience right now in, in, in the US, we have a lot of people with different allergies that we accommodate. And sometimes some people have uh, uh, some restrictions or have some items that they don't like in a, in a dish. And it's not a problem to remove it. It will not be exactly the experience that I want to deliver. But at least I will have someone who has a smile on his face when he leaves. <laughs> when are you coming to New Zealand? Soon as I can. <laughs> Cuisine Bites with Kelly Brett. Many thanks to Eric Rippert from Le Bernardine and to Barbara and Matt Lambert from The Musket Room for being so frank and honest about the highs and the lows of restaurant life. It's a tough game, but it can be glorious if you get it right. 
Next episode, to celebrate our beautiful Asian issue of Cuisine Magazine, you'll be hearing from Melbourne food writer and cookbook author Tony Tan. Chefs David Myers, Greg Bess and Justin Quick give us a glimpse inside the humongous food and beverage operation at the Marina Bay Sands in Singapore. And you can listen in on a very special chat with acclaimed chef Manish Merotra and our own Sid Sarawat as they deliver a knockout collaboration dinner at Siddharth in Auckland. I'll catch you back here for all of that very soon. Meanwhile, you can find us on social by searching Cuisine Magazine and you can subscribe to our beautiful magazine at cuisine.co.nz. <laughs> I still can't believe I asked a chef at one of the world's top seafood restaurants about chicken. Do you, do you ever get upset when um, when your customers ask you to leave something on the side or they want the chicken without the sauce or they want the... How do you cope with that? Le Bernardin being a seafood restaurant, I don't have, <laughs> I don't have a problem with the chicken. <laughs>